Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. What is the battle that rages within every single believer? Well, on today's program with Dr. Neufeld, we're going to find out as we continue to study Romans chapter 5 to 8 in the Power of the Gospel series. So let's turn to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, with this message called, The Battle Within. Not long ago, I heard the true story of a 36-year tragic history of a real church in North America. I'm going to call this church First Corinthian Church. First Corinthian Church was begun because of a fight in another church, so this was the breakaway group. They were birthed out of conflict between Christians. Well, the First Corinthian Church called a pastor, and things seemed to be going well until the pastor committed adultery along with various improper financial acts. He was dismissed, and the church called another pastor. Now, he was very popular. The church grew, but resigned after four years because of stress. Some said he had a complete nervous breakdown. A third pastor came, was popular. The church grew again. But after 10 years, he led a group of people out of that church and started another one only 10 miles down the road. Then came a fourth pastor who again seemed fine, but he had a sexual affair. The church board tried to cover this one up, but eventually it became known, and he took a call from a larger church two hours down the road, leaving behind in the First Corinthian church a board, a staff, and a congregation full of strife and anger and distrust. How can this happen? How can that happen to a church of Jesus Christ? I know what you might say. Well, that's just how carnal some people are, and at least that's never happened to our church. Well, if that's true, be grateful, but at least don't feel too judgmental and too smug. Why is it that all the sins of this church, that is, sins of ego and rivalry and division and contention and breaking of relationship and even sins of adultery and so forth, why does all this stuff not just happen in churches, but it happens inside each one of us? There is within every single man or woman who believes a great struggle that seems so large, we might fear it will overwhelm us, and if we concentrate on it, it would draw us to despair. So today, I want to discuss the great battle within. We're going to be studying Romans 7, 14 to 25, and it's one of the most painful sections in the entire Bible. And as we read this section line by line, I'm assuming that this text is, yes, still a part of a highly theological section, but this text is very personal. Some of you understand all too well what this passage is saying. This is the painful cry of defeat. It's the story of the battle within, a story that sometimes results in horrible failure. And before we go any further, it will surprise some of my hearers, especially if you haven't listened to yesterday's broadcast, to hear me apply this passage to the life of the converted believer. And so if you haven't done so and have questions, just find yesterday's broadcast and find out why I think this passage should be applied to the life of the Christian, even as a description of the interior life of the great apostle Paul. So without further explanation, let's jump right in. Romans 7, 14 and 15. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now I begin wanting to describe the mystery of the great battle that exists within every single follower of Jesus. But before I do that, it's important that we understand some of the words we've been using. First of all is the word flesh. Flesh. 
A word that, if you're using the NIV translation, is translated as lower nature. Now, the New International Version is an excellent Bible translation, but here I think lower nature is not a good translation. The Greek word is sarx. It simply means flesh every time. Now, I know that when we think of the word flesh in our language, we think of the word meat, or we might think of the human body. Now, interestingly enough, I don't think that's far off. For instance, this is what the Apostle John taught us in 1 John 4, verse 2. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So, in other words, Jesus came in the flesh means that he came with a real living human body. Now, it needs to be said that there is nothing sinful about our flesh. It was created by God. Jesus was in the flesh. He wasn't sinful. Furthermore, sometimes Paul uses the word flesh in just such a way. In Philippians 1.22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So living in the flesh is human living. Living in the flesh can mean being active in serving the Lord Jesus faithfully. Well, are you confused? Well, hang on, there's more. Listen to Philippians 3.4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. What Paul is speaking of here is his own human abilities and accomplishments. So let me paint a little scenario. God has given you a body, and that body is good. It means you have fingers and toes and hands and feet and ears and eyes and a brain, all those things. You can use your human body to accomplish many things. Some of you play the piano or the violin using your body. Some of you sing. Some of you work with your hands. And as you know, you can train your body to do things. Almost all of you have trained your body to read, and every time you read, you don't have to retrain your body. Your body has memory, and it works great. And that's why once we learn to ride a bike, that's as they say, you never forget. So when Paul uses the term flesh, he means our natural abilities, things we're able to accomplish by using our bodies, but he also means the habitual patterns built into our bodies. When our power went off in our house for several days, I kept switching the light switch, even though my mind knew we had no power. But the flesh had a response of its own apart from my will. However, in Romans 7 and in a host of other passages, the term flesh is negative. Why? Because you and I have trained our bodies, having been born into sin with a habitual pattern of unrighteousness. The flesh acts in the way in which it has been trained. Now, like reading or playing the piano or learning another language, this relies on training our flesh in habits. Flesh itself, coupled with being born in Adam, produces habits of rebellion against God. Now, remember, flesh is our natural abilities habitually trained to act in which we find we do things by routine and out of sync with or not in reliance on God's Spirit. Natural abilities not put under the submission of the Spirit of God results in sinful flesh. So here's the great first question of the battle within. First, why are my natural powers not my friend? Why, whenever I seek to accomplish something on my own, do I end up offending Christ? It seems I'm sold to sin even while I'm told that I have been released from sin and sold to Christ. Verse 14 is an experiential verse, whereas chapter 6, verse 18 is a theologically objective verse. 
And both are true. I belong to Christ, but I often feel like in my experience that I'm sold to sin. And that leads to verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You'll find in this passage, Paul uses the term want six times. Each of you has a will. When you're a Christian, what you want more than anything else is to do the will of God. You were once sold to sin. You once wanted to sin, but now you're sold to Christ, and now you want to do whatever Christ wants. Your will comes right out of your heart. Your heart is the center of your decision-making abilities. Your heart has become Christ's home. Well, then everything's fine, right? Well, you would think so, but Paul in verse 15 asks a second mysterious question. Why is my will overwhelmed with the things that I hate? You see, for many of us, our will is so weak. I'll never lose my temper again, and the flesh smiles. It has entrenched behavior patterns, and when the time is right, when your will says no, your flesh says yes. And your will is so weak, and your flesh is so strong. And that is the mystery of the battle within. Your habitual patterns, things you have nurtured over the years, are sometimes not your friend but your enemy, and they overpower your will so your flesh acts on its own. What explains this? Why do Christians act in sinful ways? The flesh has a life of its own. And so in what follows, Paul will give us an explanation of the great battle within. So let me explain what's happening within you. Four things are going on. First, all believers, if they're true believers, desire to do what's right. Look at verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. And that's the confession of all believers. We agree that all the commands of God are good and right. Compare that with verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. When Christ enters your heart, you're a new creation. At one time, you were rebellious against God and you desired what was wrong. But now you desire what's good. And God's law is an expression of what's good. Your heart, your inner being, that part of you that is born again, desires everything that Christ wants. But the battle continues. More when we come back. As we begin to study Paul's words, a picture begins to form in our minds of the internal battle that goes on within us. We get a sense of how Paul's spiritual growth is actually his continuous struggle between his flesh and his redeemed nature. And it shows us how we must understand the reality of this battle that is always with us on this side of eternity. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will shed more light into how sin overcomes our will and how we can begin to address the problem. Have you ever had a burning question about something you've heard on the program? Have you wanted Dr. Newfeld's opinion on a biblical or theological matter? Well, you may have a chance to get the answer in our upcoming Q&A series with Dr. Newfeld, starting February 29th. For one week, we'll be selecting real questions from our listeners across the country. So send us yours today. You can email us at info at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Since the heart of the redeemed man or woman delights to do God's will, for that's what it means to be born again. So what's wrong? Let's read verse 17. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, I know this illustration really dates me, but years ago, there was a comedian named Flip Wilson who had a very famous line whenever he did something wrong. The devil made me do it, he said. In other words, it wasn't me. But here in verse 17, strangely enough, Paul seems to be saying the same thing. It wasn't me, for I desire the good, but it was sin living in me that did it. So what does he mean? We have said that all believers, if they are truly believers, desire to do what's right. To that, we now add a second statement. Sin can overcome the will and become the trigger for our actions. So in our experience, we may find we don't feel free at all because our will or even the state of our heart is too weak and ineffective to direct our own life. Sin as a power using the flesh is actually stronger than our will and regularly humbles us. But that's not all. In verse 18, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I said there were four things that are going on in every believer's life. The first, all believers seek to do what is right and honoring to God. Second, sin can overcome the will and become the trigger for our actions. And now third, our natural powers are incapable of the good. Everything you do in your own strength is incapable of doing the will of God. So let me illustrate that. Over the years, I've trained my body in the craft of preaching. I know how to study a passage. I know how to outline it. I know how to turn it into a pretty good sermon. Over the years, I've developed this ability. And here's a little secret. I don't actually have to pray or submit to the Holy Spirit to produce a pretty good sermon. And what's more, you can do the same. Whole churches have found out that by organizing and by stressing excellence in all things, they can grow a church and simply employ management skills. And there's more. Every single ability you have is by itself incapable of doing what God desires. You can't by your own strength, by your own reason, by your own talent, or by your own energy do the one thing that God finds praiseworthy. See, there are many Christians who are not even aware that almost everything they have been doing is done in the power of the flesh. They plan their future by the flesh. They try to maintain their marriage by the flesh. They try to raise their kids by the flesh. They try to get ahead in business by the flesh. They got their job by the flesh, and they've kept it by the flesh, and they wonder why the flesh rules them so easily in moments of temptation or in moments of crisis. So whenever it comes to a moral issue in their life, their flesh rules or simply overwhelms their will. Now to verses 19 and 20. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Here now is our fourth principle. Our conflict arises because of the weakness of our will to control the power of sin that resides in us. See, let me illustrate that. Imagine you have in your house two big dogs. One's a white dog and one's a black one. The black one is vicious and mean and the white one is good. And you find out that the black one keeps beating up the white one and the black one rules the house. You don't know why the white one never wins. And so you ask a dog expert, can you explain this? And he watches for a while and he says, you know, I have noticed something. You're starving the white dog and you're constantly feeding the black dog. If you reverse the pattern, the white dog would win. So that in practical terms, what does that mean? 
Well, let's see if we can understand the battle within every believer. Look at verses 21 to 23. So I find it to be a law. Then when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive of the law that sin that dwells in my members. See, I want you to notice a series of contrasts in this passage. There are three of them. They are presented as a fight, like the fight between those two dogs. This is the competition that's happening within you. First, there are two competing laws in you, the law of God and the law of sin. Paul says it is a law that when I want to do good and right, evil is right there. That's a law. Now, like any law, laws have the power to enforce their demands. Whether you like the law or not, the law is there. But in this case, there are two laws. One is God's law and the other is sin's law. And these two laws are in mortal conflict with each other. And watch this, because it's fascinating. In verse 22, we're told that we delight in God's law in our inner being that's in our heart. But in verse 23, I'm also told that the law of God is compared to the law of my mind. So my mind, my intellect, my emotions, my imagination, all of that is on the side of God's law. All believers love God's law. They approve of what God desires. So mind and heart are on the side of God's law, but still there is another. And the question will always be, which law will rule? Now, this is the first of the series of competitions. Here is the second. There are two competing power centers, one in the heart and one in the body. The last part of verse 25, Paul says, so I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. In the believer, the mind and heart are on one side and the body and the flesh are on the other. And this is key, that in all the situations that you face, you are squared off between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the redeemed mind. And that's why you will have to decide who rules whom. That's why Paul tells us what he does. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after having preached to others, I myself be disqualified. Or listen to Philippians 1, 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Now, you and I need to tell the body and the flesh to submit so that the flesh will do what the heart will tell it, and not the other way around. Older theologians call this the mortification of the flesh. We need to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Let me give some examples. Let me suggest for you that have never fasted before that the first time you attempt it, your body will say, no chance. I am giving orders to the heart and the mind to immediately send some food down. I'm not going to take it. You're going to feed me. Now, if you don't, and you take a day for prayer and fasting anyway, do you know what will happen? Your body will have to submit to your heart, a heart that is Christ's home. I remember the first time I ever did a silent retreat. I went for seven days in fasting and silence, and by the third day in, I was almost in shock. My body and my flesh were in complete rebellion. They needed noise and laughter and friendship, but my heart and mind needed silence and reverence with God. So I beat the flesh. Listen to what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Listen, you have to begin to deny your flesh and retrain your flesh. And that is the battle. Sin living in you will demand one thing, and your heart and mind will cry out for obedience to the living God. And your question will always be, which dog will I feed? And then you'll become aware that there are two competing cries within you. One is the cry of despair, for the battle is so great. The other will be the cry of hope. Listen to how Paul describes this in verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's the cry of despair. And then, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every single believer knows these two cries. And in the end, when we come to Romans 8, we will learn that it is the cry of hope that wins in the end. Thanks for today, John. Hey, something that came through my mind here as you were speaking was this idea of giving credit to the flesh. And we sort of build up credits, you know, oh, I got this new job or, oh, I raised such great kids. But then something happens, a crisis in life, and we don't know where to go. Yeah, unless we train our flesh to constantly submit to the will of God in everything, if we don't do that, then we build this habitual pattern of trusting in our own flesh. And in that way, we're not even aware of it because it doesn't seem sinful to us, but the flesh really rules. And so that when the moral crisis comes or the, the time where I'm required to, to exercise faith or, or when a great temptation comes my way, because I've built a pattern of constant dependence on the flesh, the flesh will instantly begin to seize on that moment and rule that moment. That's the cycle that needs to be broken, and it can only be broken by dependence upon the Holy Spirit rather than the flesh. There's the key. This has been a rich and yet sobering lesson on the battle within every believer, the war between our flesh, the body, and our will, the heart, the desires to do what is right. Sometimes our lives may be so controlled by the flesh that we don't even recognize that it is already one. May these words of Paul cause us to first get a greater awareness of our sinful tendencies, and then to let the Spirit help us say no to the flesh through His power. Well, don't miss tomorrow's program as Dr. Neufeld will walk us through the practical steps to defeat the flesh in our own lives. Stay with us in week three of our series, The Power of the Gospel. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's not often you get a chance to visit a place that's been called America's Last Frontier. Well, this summer, we want to offer guests a unique opportunity to travel to one of the most popular destinations in the world, Alaska. That's right, for the first time, Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again are hosting the Alaska Adventure Cruise from July 3rd to the 10th, and we're inviting you to join us. Spaces are filling up fast, so don't wait to join us for an amazing getaway and a chance to not only relax and go sightseeing, but be spiritually renewed. We'll hear some great teaching from God's Word with Dr. John Newfeld, and get to recharge with stories and laughter with Phil Calloway, plus experience worship and reflection from our special musical artist, Amanda Stott. So why not come and experience the beauty of Alaska on this one-of-a-kind vacation aboard one of the finest ships of the sea, Celebrity Infinity. 
Register today to take advantage of the best rates we have to offer. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.